really glad to be able to introduce uh, Ricky Steffen to you today. Uh, I've actually known Ricky for 10 years. Yeah, something it's like been that, that yeah. long. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know. So um, he is uh, interviewing for the position of pastor of community life. As you know, uh, uh, Colton and Meredith are going to be moving in May, or maybe some of you didn't know that, but they are on their way to the States to be near some family. And so uh, it's a joy and a delight to welcome Ricky here. He's here with his wife, Michelle. They're going to share with us a little bit, do a Q&A between services, but I'm going to pass things over to him at this point as well. Can we welcome him here? Let's do that. You have to, you have to excuse me. I just got something in my eye during that last song because that's the hymn my wife and I were married to. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> so, I first, before I say anything, just want to say congratulations, Summit Drive Church, on the staff and team that you have here. I've had the pleasure and honor of spending the weekend doing everything from eating pizza to shooting shotguns with Perry. And you are a blessed people. You have a staff and team that are gifted by the Spirit and that care and love, have a lot of care and love you deeply. And I'm excited to be here discerning whether or not we're called to each other in this season. And I was curious about something, uh, just as I'm about to share a message with you that is dear to my heart from a psalm that I've grown to love deeply. I was curious whether or not you've ever thought about what it means to give someone the middle finger. Not what it symbolizes. You don't want to know. Don't go looking down that dark hole on the internet. But what it means that one of the common things that we do is proclaim the physical equivalent of curse on a, a curse on another person for cutting us off in traffic. What got me thinking about this recently was that I had the great joy and honor of traveling from North Vancouver to YVR in rush hour traffic. And it was a wonderful time. And within about 17 minutes, I saw three or four birds flipped. And what was astounding was not that there was that number of middle fingers in Vancouver rush hour traffic. Because let's face it, that's actually pretty low for Vancouver. What was the amazing thing was the speed that people pulled the finger out with. It was like everybody was a quick draw artist in the Wild West. It was like somebody cuts you off, middle finger. Right? Somebody drives into a lane in front of you, middle finger. And like, what does that say about us? What does that say about the interior world of most of us walking around on the street? And the only conclusion I can come to is that seething just below the surface for so many of us, there's just unbridled rage. And what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? I think one of the best answers I've ever found is in the book of Psalms. So if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 109. I'll be reading out of the NIV. And buckle up, I'm going to read the whole thing because you need to hear the whole thing for it to achieve its desired effect. Please read along with me, Psalm 109. My God whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. 
Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore his cursing as is a garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as a cloak. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. And the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. This is the word of the Lord. I liked heavy metal a lot when I was younger, so maybe this is why I like this psalm. But honestly, I believe that this psalm is a master class, a master class on what to do with the deepest and darkest and strongest of our feelings. It demonstrates that all those things are there to be prayed openly and honestly. And it teaches us something, I think, about prayer in general. It teaches us that prayer is bringing our whole selves to all of God. So what gets in the way of that? I mean, it sounds like a great thing. It sounds like many people would want to show up as their whole selves before their heavenly father. Well, to understand that, I think you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 2. There's this strange little detail. The first human beings are said to be naked and unashamed. And most evangelicals were a little bit prudish, so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. Aside from the one time my wife and I were joking with some friends that we wanted to start a uh, Christian spa and body positivity center. And we said it would be great to call it Naked and Unashamed. But as many commentators and even some psychologists who have dwelled on this passage will say, it's a demonstration that the factory default setting for a human being is to be completely aware of all that makes them vulnerable and defenseless, and yet unashamed of that defenselessness. And 
And another interesting little detail is that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, the first effect of sin is not God withdrawing his love from human beings or, or death. It's there in the little phrase that Adam and Eve hid from the Lord their God among the trees of the garden. That we hide our whole selves from God because of our shame and our vulnerability. Ever since we've taken the tree of the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's something that makes us want to hide away. And this would be fine if we were any good at hiding or if it was good for us, but it's not. Sigmund Freud's whole theory of repression kind of revolves around this. It's been attributed to him, this little saying, that unexpressed emotions never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. And you want an easy example of this? Just think of the last time that you used the word fine to describe your mood to somebody. I'll paint the picture for you. You're walking down the street. Somebody sees you, and they're like, oh, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine. Translation, you're not fine, right? You're trying to hide what you're really feeling, and if the person's sensitive at all, they're going to say to you, well, oh, what's going on? And they're going to kind of start to try and dig at what you've buried and hidden. And of course, with time, it always escalates, Right? The, the thing that they're digging for becomes a zombie and eats their face, right? Now, this is a pretty simple example, but think of the Florida man who shot someone in the face for speaking in a movie theater just a few years ago. See, what I'm trying to say is that it, it's a deadly, serious business what we do with our feelings because stuff like that, stuff like the quick-draw middle finger, that doesn't just happen, it's very rarely just about the moment that we're experiencing. It's about a lifetime of burying and hiding what we really feel and who we really are. And the one detail you could point out from, for Psalm 109, especially from verses 6 to 19, is that it is uncensored. It can make the hairs on the back of your head stand up, the things that the psalmist is asking for. And I think the first lesson we can take from this is that we bring our whole selves back to God by praying with brutal honesty. It's a phrase that I've taken from uh, biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann. He says that about many of the Psalms of Lament. They're brutally honest. And if you want an example of this, just think of Jesus' life. We are only given two glimpses into the prayer life of Jesus, the temptation and the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is literally sweating drops of blood and begging his heavenly father not to make him take the cup that has been prepared for him. I don't know what else to call that but brutally honest. And the hint in this psalm and many others like it is that this type of brutal honesty in prayer is cathartic. It's good for us. It does something in and of itself. Almost all of the psalms of lament and plea and imprecation end with what we could call a return to praise. We catch it in verse 30 in our current psalm. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him. And the surprising thing is, is nothing has changed for the psalmist. In any of these examples of the return to praise, God is still silent. The accusers are still chattering on. And yet the psalmist says that they will rouse themselves to open their mouths to praise the Lord. I um, have had a, a few tragedies in my family over, over my lifetime, and one of them was that my father, when he was home alone in the winter, climbed up on a ladder to change a light in his shop, and he fell off of that ladder, and he, he landed on his head. 
I was in seminary at the time, and I flew home to, to lay over his hospital bed and to pray for him. He's fine now. He has recovered. But I remember one particularly dark night when I was alone with him over his body as he was barely breathing, and I said, God, don't you see anything? Don't you care? You promised goodness, and this is not it. Be who you said you would be. And in a moment, it was like a wave of peace came over me. There is something about brutal, honest prayer that is the first step in the journey to setting ourselves free, to coming out of hiding. The other detail, and this comes from uh, my Old Testament professor, Ian Proven. I took a course on the Psalms with him. And he said one of the things that's interesting about almost all of the, the laments in the Psalms is that they're in the singular, which is weird because ancient Near Eastern culture is extremely communal. You tend to think of yourselves in relation to your family or to your nation. And it seems to be a hint, Proven used to say, that there's something about suffering, there's something about our deepest feelings of anger that makes us feel like we don't belong with other people. It makes us feel isolated. The psalmist says in our psalm, I was shaken off like a locust, like a bug that landed on somebody in a field. And the, the interesting thing, the, the surprising thing, is almost all of the psalms like this one also end with this idea that the psalmist returns to the worshiping community. In, in verse 30, the psalmist says, in the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him. So even though they're suffering and feel isolated, the psalmist essentially promises, I'm going to return to the worshiping community. And it's a hint that we bring our whole selves back to God when we bring our whole selves back to his people. And let's be honest, as churches, we've not always been worthy of the sufferer. We've not always been worthy of the pain and the doubt and the fear of other people. And I think one of the beautiful things about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about the, the gift of this psalm, is that it's designed to be read in a situation like this one, to be read aloud so that we can remember that though we may not be suffering, the person praying Psalm 109 might be sitting right beside us might even be praying this psalm about us. It's an invitation to become a people worthy of the deepest and darkest and scariest feelings of the people that we intend to serve and be in family with. Now at this point, I get it. This sounds like just being emotionally healthy. Right? It sounds like something that you could solve by going to a therapist or taking up some sort of contemplative practice or whatever. What, what, what does God have to do with any of this? What has prayer got to do with any of this? Well, prayer, the essence of it might be bringing our whole selves to God, to all of God. You could say that there is actually a, a technique or a method of praying that is distinctly Christian. Dallas Willard pointed this out to me first in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Right? Every time you see someone pray in Scripture... They are asking God for something. Prayer is asking God for something. That doesn't sound like a crazy revelation by any stretch of the imagination, but man, is it hard to do. 
in the 21st century in the wealthy West, how often are we really in touch with the fact that we are a people in deep, deep need at every moment? And the wonderful mystery, the, the, the absolutely astounding thing that we forget, that we just take for granted as Christians, really, is the fact that the all-powerful, self-generating, eternal creator of the entire universe actually wants to hear from you. He actually wants to know what you want and what you think you need. See, prayer isn't, isn't clinging to our emotions or our feelings or our wants and needs to make an identity out of them. It's, it's not letting them go and dissolve like a drop into the ocean like some traditions would say. To borrow an image from my friend who's a poet, prayer is tugging on the sleeve of our Heavenly Father and lifting the thing up and saying, Father, can I have this? And as we sang, he bends his ear towards us and listens. Walter Brueggemann said of the Psalms that the Psalms are prayers addressed to a known, named, identifiable you. This is the most stunning and decisive factor in the prayers of the Psalter. Prayer is a direct address to, and conversation and communion with, an agent known from a shared, treasured past. See, prayer comes from the fact that when we call, God answers. That's the context. That's what the Exodus was. It says in Exodus 2.24, the Lord, the Lord heard the groaning of his people Israel. Or the image of Jesus, the baby, put in the arms of Simeon, the, the ancient man who had been praying daily at the temple to see his Messiah. Or this church that exists because of generations of people praying faithfully. Or probably even your life. Somewhere down the line, somebody has lifted you up to the Heavenly Father and asked for you. And it's these two contexts. It's that prayer is, is a request and that God answers and, and wants to hear from us that set up the context for Psalm 109 for all of the kind of nasty bits and Christians have been ashamed of this psalm blatantly for years. You know, I think one commentator said, when Jesus said, pray for your enemies, surely he didn't mean this. C.S. Lewis actually wrote of this psalm, it is monstrously simple-minded to read the cursings in the psalm with no feeling except one of horror at the uncharity of the poets. They are indeed devilish. Always sketchy to disagree with someone who is far smarter than you and dead. <laughs> but saying devilish scripture, that's like saying dry water. And this is not a curse. A curse is something spoken, believing just the words have the power to make it happen. This is a prayer. This is a request to the Heavenly Father. And the answer to that prayer could be yes or no or not yet. God could have answered and said, no, David. I will not make sure his children wander as orphans in the street because he cuts you off in traffic. Why don't you go play your harp or something? It'll chill you out. But we've got to take a step back, and I really just need to put a pin in something else in the psalm. Because the psalms, they give voice to the whole breadth of human experience. And this psalm gives voice to the silence of God. 
It starts, my God whom I praise, do not remain silent. And I'll be honest with you. There are some things that I have asked for and prayed for and hoped for that I can see absolutely no good reason why my Heavenly Father wouldn't answer me, and He hasn't answered. Not in the way I want, at least. And I imagine that there are many similar feelings and similar experiences within this room. And all I can offer is how I've, I've thought through and, and processed this. I had this mentor who used to do this thing. I would say something to him, and then he would just... It was so unsettling. Like, I swear, I think I timed him once, and there was like a minute and 30 seconds of silence between something. But what I noticed is that that silence was a prerequisite for his listening. That every time he made space for me, I'd be like, no, you're right, dude. You're right, dude. I'm way off on that. I think it's more like this. Or actually, you know what? We don't need to talk about that. I think I got this one. And sometimes when we feel like we're experiencing silence from God, we're seeing it as if he's gazing indifferently, as if he just doesn't care. And sometimes I, I've allowed myself to, to see the, the whites of the eyes of my Heavenly Father when I see that silence, when I hear that silence, to, to feel that this is a loving gaze, just waiting and watching and seeing and listening. And sometimes, to be frank, a, a lot of Great teachers who are far more eloquent, eloquent than me will tell you that one of the things that prayer is, is prayer is one of the places that God's character shapes us. That this, is, that this is something that happens when we pray. Sometimes God is making space because he believes in us and wants us to act. And at first glance, Psalm 109, it looks like it's just a hurricane of hatred, right? Just a temper tantrum. But if you look closely and you know what to look for, it's actually intimately shaped by the character of God. The most quoted verse in the Old Testament is God's self-revelation in Exodus 34. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed. Why don't you, tr why don't you try it with me? Hesed. Right? You get the clear the throat as you say it, right? And that word is actually kind of the linchpin of Psalm 109. In verse 12, the psalmist asks that no one show said to the accuser because, in verse 16, this person has not shown said steadfast love or, or covenant faithfulness to the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted, the ones that God has his eye on in particular. And in a very classic way, the psalm ends with a request that the Lord act for his name's sake to demonstrate and prove his covenant faithfulness. But if you want an even better example of, of praying with brutal honesty and letting God's character shape you in that, I think the best example actually has to do with how the disciples dealt with the betrayal of Judas. So take a second and just, well, some of you might not have to think very hard, actually, about what it feels like to be betrayed, what it feels like to have someone who's supposed to love and care for you, who has promised you something, Put a knife in your back. This is what the disciples experienced. I mean, they traveled for three years on mission with Judas. They would have known the sound of his laughter. They would have slept under the stars in the Judean desert together. And yet he turned around and sold for a pittance 
the one that they had come to know as a Messiah. And we are told that the disciples had at least one sword among them. What would you do? I might sharpen it. I might go looking at the places I knew Judas hung out. I might want to hurt him the way that he hurt me. But one blink and you miss it detail in Scripture is that in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, after Judas has met his untimely end, Peter stands up and quotes Psalm 109, verse 8. He says, let another rise and take his place of leadership. And I believe there's another psalm of imprecation quoted in this passage. I believe this is a hint from the the writer of the book of Acts that Psalm 109 might have been a place that the early church turned to pray through what had happened with Judas. And in praying with brutal honesty, they heard from their Lord and they knew that they could leave their experience safely within his hands. As one commentator says, that praying these violent words was itself an act of nonviolence. So the question for, for all of us today is who are you sharpening your sword for? What's got your middle finger itching? Who's hurt you? What's disappointing you? Maybe you're the type of person who's come out swinging. Or maybe you're the type of person who sharpened that sword just to swallow it. And it's been tearing you up inside for years. The thing that has had me stuck on this psalm and made it one of my favorites is just this weird little detail in Psalm 109.4. It's a, it's a really wooden translation of the Hebrew. It says, for my, for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am prayer. And I don't know what else to tell you to be. In the face of all that you've suffered and all that you've lost, in the face of a world that is so cold and indifferent with the fragility of our lives and the feebleness of all our efforts. I don't know what else to be but a thin, reedy voice calling out into the night, Lord, have mercy. I've been keeping up with your community for about a month now by distance, and I know that this has been a hard season in this church. I know there have been sudden losses and sicknesses. I know that you pray deeply for people you love who are currently living under war-torn skies. And I know that with all that comes doubts and fears and anxieties and pains. And I know that your heavenly father knows what you need before you say it, but he loves to hear it. That you exist to bring your whole self before him. Abraham Joshua Heschel once wrote, a person is a being whose anguish may reach the heart of God. He will bend his ear towards you. Bring your whole self to all of him. Trust him to answer you and shape you. And I know that I know that I know it may not be now, may not be tomorrow, it may not be in your lifetime, but I know, I know that he will answer you. Let's pray together. Good Father, 
You have not asked us to wear our Sunday best when we show up to you. You see through every wall we could put up and every mask we could wear. Help us to trust you today. Help us to trust you with all that we hold dear, with all that we're ashamed of and worried about. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may the tenderness of your presence inspire us to trust you today. For we know you are worthy of that trust. And we pray all this based on the character, reputation, and example of Jesus. Amen.